Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm delighted to have uh, someone calling in all the way from Silicon Valley this morning, Mr. Chris Pepe. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks so much. Uh, good morning to you. It's evening here, but a uh, true pleasure to be connecting across time zones and countries and all that good stuff. Exactly. Yeah, I do that all the time. As I said, this is my morning slot here with... Uh, guest in the United States. And uh, before we get kicking, let me just sort of quickly give a quick introduction to our audience uh, to who you are. You're currently the chief commercial officer for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic properties. And that, in simple sense, means you are working on the L.A. 2028 Olympics, which is really uh, one of the big topics we're going to be talking about, which uh, I look forward to so so far in advance. And of course, with the Olympics, what everything was happened this year and potentially next year. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to take a really good look at your illustrious career uh, across Major League Soccer, Yahoo, Visa, uh, and a few others. So that's how we always start. We kind of get kicking off with uh, you know how you got into the industry. Um, I can see you are a lawyer by training, and mm-hmm. uh, and then of course you you know I think you spent a couple of years in in the law in law uh, before you got involved in major league soccer. So tell us about the early days. Uh, was law you know again you saw uh, you know illustrious lawyers getting into the world of sports, and that's why you took that route too, or because that's what I heard a few <laughs> times already this story. But or how did you get into the world of sports? Yeah, Marcus, if if only it was so contrived and planned. Uh, it wasn't at all. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I'm happy to tell you the story and um, and look forward to talking about the Olympics later on as well. Um, but uh, so I got into sports accidentally, uh, actually. So okay. a- as you correctly said, I was uh, was a lawyer, graduated law school, was practicing law. And in one of those small world moments, I actually went back to my hometown to become a to become a practicing lawyer. Mm-hmm. And it was a town called Rockford, Illinois. And during that, you know, when I went back, I started reconnecting with old friends. And um, as it turned out, I was the junior transaction guy at this law firm, Williams McCarthy in Rockford. And they assigned me random clients, essentially. And they assigned me a client by the name of Doug Logan. Doug had been my first boss when I was in high school because I was a elevator operator and usher at the local arena. And Doug Logan ran the local arena in Rockford, Illinois. So just really by coincidence, he became a client of mine at my law firm. And we were doing some real estate work and I read in the newspaper that he was becoming the commissioner of this new upstart soccer league called major league soccer. Right. And I I had no idea. I mean, we were, you know, we were more colleagues than anything else. I was the young guy on his accounts. um, So we didn't, we hadn't talked about this Hmm. and I called him immediately Uh, I grew up part of my life in Italy and had been a a football or soccer fan my entire life. And Mm. um, and I said, boy, this sounds really cool. I would love to talk to you about it. And I didn't hear from him for, you know, for a while because it was a whirlwind for him Mm. moving to L.A. because Major League Soccer started in L.A. Um, And then he he eventually called me back 
and said, yep, I want you. I need a guy to carry my bag, a guy I can trust. And he said, this is what I'm going to pay you. I tried to counter, and he said, no, this is what I'm going to pay you, um, and I need you to move to L.A. as soon as you can. Uh, And that was it, and that was the beginning of a – of a career in sports uh, that wasn't really supposed to happen because I was supposed to have a career in law and politics. Yeah, I love so. it. I love it. Well, I I had a little to do with with the the movement in soccer in the United States. I was in the U.S. in 1994. I studied in the United States, and um, and I was involved in the football <laughs> World Cup at that time. Um, I worked for ISL ah. Marketing, and I was based in Dallas, um, and I was running the venue <laughs> for the uh, FIFA World Cup there. So uh, yeah, it was an incredible time, and of course I. I followed what happened after, um, you know, with MLS and how it got started, and of course all the, the people behind it who made it happen. So, you know, before we move on, I'd love to really talk a bit about it. Tell us a bit about those four years you were there, starting a football league in the country. Well, you know, there was football before, obviously. Um, yeah. You know what you guys called soccer. Uh, yeah. You know, so but you know, starting this still from scratch, you know, bringing all these the teams together. I mean, that must have been a crazy, a crazy ride. So, talk a bit about it. <laughs> it was a crazy ride, and, and you know I was fortunate to be in when we were still picking team names and logos and you know players. Uh, we had our first player combine in uh, La Jolla and Del Mar in California on these polo fields, and you'd see these guys running around trying to make the teams. And you know this was, as you recall, this was at a time when soccer was not necessarily the big thing in the united states in fact right many people questioned that we could actually host the world cup not really knowing the sport from their perspective and you did Um, well there the world cup was amazing yeah we yeah we did well i mean um we probably exceeded expectations at the time and you know it was kind of a this rebirth for the sport itself so you know what we were trying to do is get a league off the ground Essentially, 90% of the staff were folks that worked on the World Cup. So it was mm. for a lot of them, it was a continuation yeah. of the work that they had done. Um, for me, it was a, a new enterprise and opportunity uh, to get connected to the World Cup folks, but also help to start really all the basic components of you know starting a professional league and you know team names, uniforms, players, venues. Uh, Fans, tickets, broadcast deals, all, all of the things that you, you know, you take for granted today in, you know, when you start a job with a, with a sports enterprise, we started from scratch yeah. um, at the time. So uh, um, Lamar Hunt was one of the co-founders, right? Correct? Yeah. So, and that was one of the amazing things, Marcus, you're sitting around this table and you've got Lamar on one side and you have Phil Anschutz on the other. That's right. You've got Bob, Bob Kraft. Uh, across the table, um, a guy by the name of Stuart Sabotnik from Metro Media uh, in New York, who was the chairman of our board at the time. I mean, you had these titans of sports industries sitting around the table trying to figure out, and mostly American football guys, yeah. how do we make this soccer thing work? Um, Robert Kraft and Lamar Hunt both had their sons at the table who really, really bright, great guys who knew a little bit more about soccer as a sport and we're kind of helping to lead the charge here too but really interesting conversations with you know and and obviously you know alan rothenberg was there as well and knew so much coming out of the world cup 
So, so did, did your Italian sort of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, you have an Italian passport, I believe, as well, right? So did, did that sort of help yeah. to, uh, you know, uh, bring some of that soccer, you, you know, passion which you had uh, with it, I guess? or <laughs> You know, I, I think one of the interesting things about sports is, uh, I, yes, I was a, sp a fan of the sport, but no one was asking me to lace up the boots and do anything on the pitch. Right. Uh, they were more interested in what I could do off the pitch uh, around, you know, legal contracts and some of the business operations. Um So I think it helped in this, you know, just having offline conversations and enjoying being at matches and talking about the matches. But it didn't really help, you know, from a from a business perspective. Right. Um, it was a nice to have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. Well, I mean, you, you obviously then you, you moved on from there, um, you know, and exactly, we could probably spend the whole hour just talking about the MLS here, um, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe the last one is, you know, where, you know, obviously looking back now from where you started and where the league is now, I mean, you know, any, you know, comment on that before we, uh, you know, move up the list here? Yeah, I, so I think just briefly, I, I think... I think for the folks that were there early on, it, they were really, really difficult four years. Um, we were really never certain whether we would actually make it the longer term. And um, and it was it was trying times because we were always trying to fund mm. uh, this enterprise. And I think that part of the legacy of the first people there were was the ability to keep it alive during those difficult years. And then, you know, through the transition from Doug to Don Garber, And Don really getting his his hands into it and his footprints all over it. I think that you know he experienced some early difficult years too. But look, I think they've done an unbelievable job of taking the reins from those early years to grow it into a long term viable sports enterprise that it is today. Absolutely. And you really have to credit also the the you know the early owners that are still you know still part of this because yep. they really they really stuck it out and, and saw it through. And we all owe them a debt of gratitude if you're a soccer fan of the U.S. Um, oh, sure. They're largely responsible. For yeah, and, and their vision was amazing, absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and it is a great league now. There's no doubt about it. It was, you know, huge attendances across the country and, of course, new teams coming up everywhere. And you know, one of my old buddies uh, is actually running one of the teams uh, in, uh, I think, the new one in Nashville, hmm. Mr. Ian Eyre. He's the CEO. Oh, there. yeah. Um, <laughs> So now let's moving on here. And uh, I mean, I'll, you know, I won't touch on everyone, but, uh, you know, an interesting one you were involved in was Yahoo. Of course, uh, you know, big player at that time, uh, maybe less, uh, a bit more marginalized maybe now <laughs> with, uh, you know, Google and <laughs> others. But uh, at that time, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a big, big player in the early 2000s here. Um, <laughs> you know, tell us a bit about uh, your days there. Yeah, I will. But before I do, I've got to tell you, if if we put a bet, in 1999, whether MLS or Yahoo would still be alive in 2020, I mean, 10 times out of 10, I would have said Yahoo. Yeah, of course. Uh, right? I, I I wouldn't have expected, you know, how things had you know, evolved over time. Absolutely. Um, but as I was kind of winding down my years at MLS, so MLS moved from Los Angeles to New York City, and I was in New York City, and a lot of the guys in the office were – You know, keeping an eye on what was going on in Silicon Valley, and we had people day trading and this and that. And hmm. I was a young guy, uh, unmarried, no family, and I, I really got the itch and said, "Boy, there's this unbelievable thing happening across the country. Yep. I'm going to go make that happen somehow." Um, 
And again, I kind of got lucky. Um, I was able to find a job online, find an apartment online, all those good things. Came out and left the company I came to be with after six weeks hmm. uh, because it was it was one of those notorious dot bombs. Uh, but <laughs> a but what else was happening at this time, and you may recall this with with your background too. It was um, early 2000s, and ISL was running into some problems. Yes. And FIFA was looking for a partner to help them with their online presence. Right. Uh, in, right? FIFAWorldCup.com at yes. the time. That's right. I got reacquainted with old MLS friends um, who, uh, a guy by the name of Randy Bernstein, who was at Yahoo, and he and Alan were, Alan Rothenberg, were looking to. Uh, strike a deal for Yahoo for the World Cup rights. Mm. And uh, I was here and available, and they asked me to come in and oversee basically the sales side of the joint venture with FIFA. So right. we got to know the FIFA team well, and then we stood up the first global sales enterprise for Yahoo, and it was all around the World Cup. Mm. And in a, in a weird twist of fate, we were probably the last big sports announcement announcement on 9-11-2001 when uh, we announced our deal on that day in Europe wow. before everything happened on 9-11. Yeah, crazy. That is crazy. And and uh, and I do recall, yes, I do recall Yahoo being a FIFA partner for you know several years there. And so, again, yeah. interesting. So you were part of that early days there. Um, you know, so where you, now looking at the, the days, uh, the, the years you were there, so you were involved at the 2002 World Cup? Um, mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. In, uh, in sales career in Japan. Interesting. Yeah, Japan and Korea. And, and, you know, I think at the time, too, Yahoo had uh, interesting business operations in Japan because it was a different structure. Mm. Um, so it really, you know, for us as a business at the time with Yahoo, uh, created some interesting uh, moments for us as we had to negotiate with FIFA, since it was a bit of a joint venture, and then with Yahoo Japan, which was also a bit of a joint venture, yes. and then our friends in Korea. Wow. Um, but we had a, I mean, we were very fortunate. We had a great run, and businesses were really just starting to adapt to marketing and advertising uh, online. It, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it was, what, 18 years ago, yeah. um, but it was starting to happen. Yeah, oh, interesting. So now then, you spend a, you also spend a couple of years uh, before we get to uh, sort of the Olympic part here. Slowly, um, you spend a couple of years with Premier Partnerships, <laughs> uh, which uh, I believe probably my good friend Jeff Marks must have been around at that same time. Uh, or did you, yeah, did you do some so, work with Jeff or <laughs> no? Uh, okay. Jeff came in when I left. All right, uh, interestingly okay. enough. Okay, uh, but I, I do know Jeff and. Um, I so let's see again my uh, my partner in crime at Yahoo Randy uh, left Yahoo and decided to start up Premier Partnerships All right. and um, yeah we were past the World Cup uh, we had you know some some issues going on with the Women's World Cup and it was a, it was a good opportunity to try and start something uh, from scratch again mm. uh, not quite I'm not quite the serial entrepreneur that you are but. I certainly like to get involved with things at the early stages. Yeah, you um, <laughs> And, yeah, so we, you know, again, it was one of those opportunities to help stand up an agency um, and really get it up and running this time back in L.A. Right. Um, 
and it was with Randy and Alan again. And, you know, they've done a tremendous job early on. It was all about um, naming rights uh, for stadiums and uh, still a large part of their business. But I think they've really grown their consultancy and I think are supporting a lot of the a lot of the cities as they start to pitch for the 2026 World Cup here in the U.S. So now that that led yeah. them to a, a very you know long uh, you know and I'm sure interesting mm. uh, time with Visa um, you know and from what mm. I can see that was again mostly around well not mostly but it was definitely around the Olympics um, of course Visa also became a partner of the uh, of FIFA uh, and many other mm-hmm. properties so uh, let's let's dig a little bit into that <laughs> before we go into of course LA28 because it's a natural flow here so you know sure. Going a bit from a more, you know, sales side and go, coming in from an agency side, you know, having worked, you know, starting up a, you know, a, a football league, and now you're in truly in the, you know, and Yahoo, I guess, was was a corporate world as well. So I guess you had a bit of yeah. uh, time there. But, uh, you know, Visa, again, is a big global player. Um, you know, how, how did this sort of start and, and what was the fun parts you had with Visa here, being on the client yeah, side? Um, yeah, so... It was it was fun to be back on the client side where, you know, as you may know, on the agency side, you're waiting for people to call you back. Some do, some don't. You just you never know when you're going to get that next conversation. That's right. When you go to a big blue chip Fortune 100 company. Everyone calls you back and everyone (laughs) wants to talk to you. And and look, I mean, you you're suddenly the most popular guy at the party right and so that that was definitely that was definitely a transition i you know i was i grew up to never forget my roots and uh certainly never let that get to my head uh but it was it was definitely a change a transition and what really changed from you know from a professional perspective is instead of selling outside you're selling inside Mm. so you spend a lot of time at these big companies uh you know basically trying to sell, convince, um, analyze, deduce opportunities for the company that are going to help your bottom line. Um, so I was fortunate. I left from Premier straight into Visa. At the time, as you say, we were not a World Cup partner. Uh, we had the Olympic Games, the Rugby World Cup, and a number of entertainment properties. Um, but I think one of the reasons they brought me in was they – had an ambition for the World Cup, and you may recall Mastercard had the partnership. Absolutely, at the time it was a it was a very interesting uh, time in the discussions, negotiations, and then you know what happened afterward. Yeah, I want to um, talk about that too. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so we yeah we were fortunate uh, to be able to then have Rugby World Cup, FIFA World Cup, and the Olympic Games. And again, as a as kind of a startupy kind of thing, uh, I led the team to build the Visa FIFA football team to mm. determine how we were going to start uh, to show up in market. Uh, what, what was the first World Cup actually uh, uh, Visa had? I have at that point I can't remember. Yeah, you know, yeah. So you know what's what's really funky about this is that we you know we were signed for post the 2006 Germany World Cup. Mm-hmm. before the World Cup happened. So MasterCard had the World Cup in Germany, but we right. were we were sitting by for the next opportunity. So mm-hmm. South Africa South Africa was our first men's World Cup yeah. in twenty ten, which was 
an unbelievable experience too. Right. Now, um, now um, again, you're a lawyer, and therefore I'm sure you know how to answer this question, uh, you know, appropriately. <laughs> um, now, this the, the, obviously the, yeah. the transition was a complete mess. Let's put it this way, right? Um, actually, the gentleman yeah, on the FIFA yeah. side is an old friend, um, and I know he still has uh, some legal issues there. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, tell me a little bit about from a visa point of view, um, how would yeah. you describe what happened? Yeah, I mean. Look, you can appreciate that Visa, as a very conservative financial company, that everything is by the book and in black and white. And you know, we certainly on our side made sure that we checked everything and that there were no restrictions or issues, and mm-hmm. uh, proceeded as you know as we thought was fair game uh, to have discussions and negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was really interesting because. We saw it from our perspective. I, I wasn't close to the guys at MasterCard, and I'm sure they saw it from their perspective. And then you had an organizing body in between, and you know they were doing what they were doing to get their maximum opportunity uh, across the finish line. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, it was really challenging, I think, for both both companies because, as I said, conservative financial companies number one, um, boards that are highly sensitive to any sort of controversy yes, um, and so you know both of us I'm sure were reporting on the legal proceedings and where this might end up next and you know I don't you know a few of the guys that got mixed up on that on the FIFA side you know, they're great guys still good friends and mm. I don't think meant to do anything um, that was that was not proper um, so I mean that's that's all I can really say. Um, we were fortunate to come out on top at the end of the day because of some, you know, some settlement that happened uh, between the, the two other parties. Mm. Um, but it was tough. And, and as you can imagine, when you invest in a large global property like this, it's not how you want to start your relationship. Yeah, exactly. So we had a lot, a lot of work to do uh, internally again to make sure that there was trust that was regained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people were feeling good about the property again, and then externally with consumers who, you know, I think mostly quickly forgot um, some of the the legal issues that were that, yeah. that happened along the way. I mean, how, how, yeah, and, and, I, and fair enough. I I think we, uh, you know, again, this could be another hour just on that topic alone. Yeah. Uh, um, actually, I will have uh, yeah. uh, the other gentleman we're talking about here on the uh, eventually on it. He he has already lined up, but he said he needs a little more time. Mm. Um, so this will mm. be a topic we're digging in deeper uh, and to hear it again from his side, right, from the other side. Um, yeah. But uh, before we get there, now, again, Visa obviously is involved in so many different uh, facets of sports. Um, so tell mm-hmm. us a bit from, you know, what is always, what's the ultimate reason FIFA is in it? I mean, I know it probably, but, uh, you know, I'd love to hear it from you uh, who spend, you know, almost 10 years in Visa. You know, what drives it? Um, I know it spikes revenue um, and usage and everything, but, uh, you know, there must be more to it. Yeah, so... In, without getting overly technical on this, um, Visa has has had a very long and storied relationship with the Olympic Games, and I think in large part, at least while I was there, uh, there was a strong belief that the growth of the Visa brand um, was at least partially attributable to the relationship and partnership with the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. Right. So as the brand grew and it was able to gain positive brand attributes and equity 
from the Olympic rings, there was a belief that uh, the the Olympic Games were paying off in a big way from a brand perspective. Mm-hmm. And with Visa, it's it's really the banks that have the relationship with the consumers. So the ability to pass through rights to the banks for them mm-hmm. to activate uh, was critical. Right. The, the FIFA opportunity was a little bit different in the sense that the brand had grown, um, but debit was really kind of the next great big thing. Mm-hmm. And there was a feeling that with the World Cup that we would be able to reach a different consumer base, um, extend our growth in countries that the Olympics maybe weren't as popular as football would be. Mm-hmm. Um so there was there was a belief that there was a strong complement between credit and debit, so more affluent and more day to day, and Olympics very strong U.S. and Commonwealth countries for a large you know a large degree, but football would help us in Latin America and Africa, um, and some of the continents where we were still trying to continue to gain momentum and grow share. So the idea was we'd bring them together and work through our banks and be able to extend our footprint and continue to grab share, not from MasterCard, but from cash. Because for anyone that works at Visa or MasterCard, you're always looking to displace cash, not each other necessarily. Um, So with I would say with the running start from the Olympic Games and this core belief that sponsorships can work in the business model that Visa had with the banks and the pass-through rights, mm. that the World Cup would be a tremendous compliment and opportunity for us. And, you know, again, in my time there, it was certainly true. Our first World Cup was in Africa, and um, it paid out in spades. Um, we felt very, very strongly about uh, the success of it, so much so that we we had signed originally for 10 and 14 and before i left i ushered in the renewal to get us through this next world cup in 22. Hmm. yeah excellent so you were when you were there you were if i look again so you got the 2010 world cup um, you had the 2012 olympics uh, in london so you were all part of those uh, um, i guess uh, operations in some sense or yeah, so we had, let's see, just the quick rundown, I think it was something like Germany for World Cup in 06, and then we had Rugby World Cup in Paris in 07, I think, Beijing Olympics in 08. Of course, yeah, Beijing. And then, right, and then we had, let's see, then we had the, the World Cup in 2010, we had Torino as well, Vancouver. Right, yeah, um, Winter Olympics, that's right. Winter Olympics, yeah. So I mean, it's when you're there, your year looks like it's Winter Games, Super Bowl, <laughs> <laughs> World Cups, and then all the other things that we did, right? So it was really a time when Visa was invested in a lot of right. sports and entertainment. So, yeah. I mean, one one thing I always have to um, I have to get myself when I go to these major events as a representative, or, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some fashion. You kind of have to go snap back to reality, right? Because these events aren't real, right? In a sense, right? You are—it's <laughs> all that VIP entertainment, and, and everyone runs after yeah. you, right? And all the stuff which you have, and especially as a major major sponsor. I mean, it would be even more than on the agency side. So, uh, how do you do that? How do you balance going back to the real world after an Olympics and a World Cup every every two years? <laughs> um, you know, I think 
for me, it's it's not really been an issue, but I, I I have seen where people, you know, post events, especially if it's the one that you're going to do, as opposed to doing multiples, mm. that there is this kind of this hangover after party depression. Yeah. Um, what's going to be as great as that? The good thing about being at a place like Visa is, well, it's going to be a gr- as great as that. It's the, <laughs> next, the next one that one we comes. do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? the next In a few months. <laughs> so you're sense. always. You're, and you're planning, you know, years out. So Absolutely. by the time you get to the event, you have done so much planning. And I think I did from San Francisco to Johannesburg. I in about a year and a half, I think I did 14 different uh, trips, and that's a long way to go. Yeah. That's and a- so by the time you get to it, you're exhausted. You're, you know, everything's locked in. You just got to get through the 30 days. Yeah. And, you know, then you're kind of relieved. You're like, okay, let me breathe before we get planning on the next one. Yeah, so. awesome. I love it. Well, like I said, you know, 10 years or nine years there at Visa, there's uh, there's tons of story, I'm sure. Um, but we want to get to <laughs> LA 28, which is, of course, another eight years <laughs> now into the future here. Uh, but before we get there, I, I got to start my own, share my own little 1984 LA story here. Um, which, which is uh, quite cute. Um, so at that time, I was 16, a uh, young boy in Germany. Um, and of course, the, 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 the time difference there means most of the stuff happens in the middle of the night. So I remember having a TV in my room, um, in, my, in front of my bed. And I watched the, uh, the closing ceremony with uh, Lionel Richie singing all night long. <laughs> And I was having tears in my eyes. I was, you know, tears streaming down, watching him sitting there. And, of course, this amazing closing ceremony on the back of it. Um, And I was always, I could never work out why I was so emotional about sports. Now, now, you know, sort of, you know, 30 plus years later, um, I I know why. (laughs) Uh, You know, this is somewhere, it's just sports in my DNA. But it was was the weirdest thing. I've always had those moments. And I do recall this, you know, not just while because we're talking here, but this is one of those stories which is always in the back of my head. Uh, watching that particular closing ceremony there and how emotional it was. So what is your memory of 84? And then we go into 2028. Yeah, you know, well, first I got to say, I think that that's one of the magical things about sport, right? It does elicit this emotion and this passion that sometimes you didn't even know existed, right? In, in your case, you're surprised by your emotional reaction and you can hardly understand why. Yes. Um, but it, that is the amazing part of this. And I was the same age as you, uh, but in a small town in Illinois and, you know, back in my hometown of Rockford. And I just for me, I just remember that this was this moment that was larger than life. Mm. Like it seemed like this unbelievable other world and not even recognizing that it was so much in my own country. It was more just this thing that was bigger than anything I could ever really imagine. Mm. So it was a, it was an interesting time for me just in appreciating the magnitude of something like this. And, you know, for me, the bigger moment was the, you know, the U.S. hockey miracle uh, in, in Lake Placid. Right, um, okay. That was more the moment for me where it was like, oh, my God, this is yeah, un- an unbelievable moment. Right, okay. Yeah. So... But everyone, you know, everyone does have a story. And I do think that these these big events, they, you know, they tend to seed that next generation of sports and entertainment enthusiasts and executives. It's one of the exciting things about the opportunity. 
So let's talk LA28. I mean, first of all, you just recently launched the logo, which looks amazing. I love the the way it changes and the, you know diff, the different motives to it. Let's talk talk about that for a minute, and and then I really want to hear you know how you guys are planning eight years out. You know the vision, a big picture around it. But uh, let's talk a bit about the logo. How did that come about, and and what's the you know tell us about the meaning, etc. Yeah, I mean, so there's a few things here, right? And I, I think. What people saw at the end was the culmination of over two years of, of hard work and understanding what would resonate with kind of an, the next generation of fans. And that's that's really a big part of this. Not only how do you engage with our fans for the next eight years, keep it interesting, relevant, um, but also how do we continue um, to connect with this next generation so that they're really bought into the Olympic and Paralympic movement uh, as so many of us are already today. Mm. Uh, they want to participate in the storytelling, right? They don't want to just be a kind of a, uh, someone sitting by and consuming the event. They really need to and want to be a part of it and in the mm. center of it. Um, and maybe equally as important is this idea of self-expression, right? So how do you, how do you, how do you get involved with a, a movement, a games, an event, a mark where you can actually express yourself as part of that as well. Mm. Um, and when we were doing the work, we recognized that you know, L.A. is so many different pieces of the world. Yeah. It's not just one L.A. It's it's a, you know, it's kind of stitched together from many different parts. Mm. Um, and we saw an opportunity, quite frankly, to help drive community and bring people together and give them something to celebrate around. That was a big, you know, this big idea in a moment, by the way, where the Olympic Games is, even with everything crazy that's going on in the world, we're still the optimistic platform for fans and athletes. You know, we're the place where you want to see humanity get together uh, on a world stage in a peaceful, friendly way. So pulling all of this together and knowing that L.A. is this kind of center of optimism and creativity, the idea was how do you form a mark that will continually evolve over eight years and allow our fans and the communities to participate and make the mark theirs? All right, okay, right? cool. So there will so, be further yeah. iterations of it? Is there? So oh, is yeah. Yeah, all right, okay. So it's like yeah, a living yeah. and breathing uh, mark in a sense, is it? Absolutely. It, that, right. that is like the intention. That. So we launched, yeah, we launched with our, you know, basically uh, a series of marks um, with help from, you know, some co-creation um, for the marketplace. Hmm. Um it, but the idea is that there's a story behind what the games or what L.A. means to you, right. and it helps shape the artistic impression of what the A is, right? This constantly evolving mark. Mm. So, nice. yeah, I like that. that's the idea. It's, it's, yeah. I, I tell you, it's, it's a big move, we believe, in the right direction for the IOC. This, as you can imagine, is not a traditional approach, um, but we're, we're about being a little unconventional and trying to do things yeah. a little differently. 
No, I love that. And, and, and that's what, you know, 84 LA, everyone still talks about it, how mm-hmm. it was such a game changer at the <laughs> time, right? Um, and therefore, I have, yeah. I have no doubt that 28, again, the, the marks are set very high, or at least the expectations are set very high, right? Um, that doesn't mean that hopefully next year we're going to see an amazing, you know, Olympics in Tokyo and, and similar Paris will, I'm sure, create again another tremendous experience uh, but yeah I think LA is it right now this sort of uh, now as I said any eight years out it's a long time I mean for anyone uh, mm. that's a lifetime in many ways um, so how do you plan that far ahead especially now in your world on the commercial side I mean can you really start talking to people about hey would you like to be a sponsor in eight years from now they're like why don't you come back in maybe four or five or six <laughs> yeah no, it, look, look, it's a really good question. I think the first thing is just to demystify what we're out there with because as the properties group, we represent the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, right. Team USA, and LA28. So right. this is, yes, in large part about uh, driving revenue for the LA Games, but it's also about funding Team USA, right. athlete performance and development, in all of the games leading up. So Tokyo is as much our responsibility um, at, from a commercial perspective as LA 28 is. Yeah. So that that's first and foremost. But the second part of it is, you know, when you look at partnerships, we're certainly not inventing the idea of long-term partnerships. Those have been around for a long time. And as we discussed earlier on the call, you know, I did two eight-year deals when I was at Visa on the World Cup. So those are not new. I think what's what's new is our approach to the marketplace, how we're looking to evolve the revenue model and how we're shaping the partnership. And we can talk a bit about that. Yeah, but the eight-year the eight-year journey, especially when you've got Team USA uh, and the you know the Olympic Committee, Olympic Paralympic Committee as part of this, there's an opportunity to storytell for eight years and really drive brand equity and, and uh, acquire these brand attributes mm. across this period of time. And it's proven, you know, data proves that the longer you're with these properties, the greater transfer of equity there is. Right. So you know, we have data on our side as well that proves out the value of the long-term partnership. And, and I, as I, I, I love you. You keep uh, referring it to stories, uh, and, and I believe that it, that's really what we are. I think in, in the world of sponsorship, we're storytellers, right? We need to build that story yeah. around whatever property it is, right? And, and, you, and everyone has one, whether uh, whatever sport it is, whatever athlete we're talking about. There are stories which which we you know need to bring across. Um, so, how do you pl- currently? How would you play out the story to a to a sponsor? Um, from why they should be coming involved in the in the American, you know, in the U.S. Olympic team now, and then all the way to to 28. It was sort of the short the short elevator pitch here. Yeah, and I'll give you some some elements of this because really a large part of this for us and now, and just for context, I've been I've been at this now for two years, mm-hmm. um, and so it's been a it's it's been a long period of time to help us drive a strategy and develop our approach to the marketplace and we're out there talking to a lot of great companies Um, but first and foremost for us coming from the brand side a big component was trying to get out of this this protect and control belief that these governing bodies really just want to control their ip and protect it closely and do the storytelling themselves and 
and getting more to this empower and support. So mm. working with brands where we can let go of the reins a bit and empower them and support them to tell the stories that will certainly help the movement, help the athletes, help the LA 28 games, but also drive their business, uh, drive engagement, um, and making sure that we're flexible enough that it works for them. And that, it sounds like such a simple concept, but coming from the brand side, I can tell you my experience has been that that's not always how governing bodies tend to look at partners. Um, Oftentimes it's, here's your, you know, you pay the cover charge and now, now that you're in the bar, we're going to keep selling you or trying to sell you different drinks to get you to pay more and more. Our approach is a little bit different. We have a lot of inclusions uh, in what we're providing to the marketplace uh, and really have worked hard over the last two years to let go of the reins a bit. And that's, look, if nothing else, I think the brand work shows that, that we're open to working with partners um, in many different facets um, to co-create and be a part of this long-term storytelling with Mm us. And one of the one of the core components of this for our top partners are this concept of these purpose-driven platforms. And again, it's interesting what's happening in the world today because for about a year and a half now, we've been out there talking about making sure that there is a there is a purpose-oriented program that forms a core component of our partnership together. Hmm. The Olympic Games can be this convening force where we can help to bring a lot of people together to make things happen or make it easier for things to happen, which oftentimes brands need. Um, But how do we stand for good? How do we stand for something meaningful and long lasting together using the Olympic access and equity and the brand's innovation and ideation to marry these things and do something big? Because if, look, if if we just host the spectacular games we will have missed an opportunity to do something big to change the world to a world that we want to see. Yeah, I and totally agree. It sounds very lofty, but it's look, we really believe it, and yeah. that's I think no, that's no, no, what no, makes no, us a bit special. Exactly, I think that's all part of the as you said storytelling and drive, drive, creating a dream there um, for everyone to you know associate itself with. Now, I want to talk a bit more hard commercials here. Um, you know, yeah. the you know again. LA uh, 84 drove huge numbers, um, you know, broke new records in terms of revenue streams. Um, and then, of course, it was always topped by the next one. You know, I think Beijing maybe by now still one of the biggest where when it comes from a, from a local organizing committee, the revenue they generated, I believe, was larger than actually what uh, the IOC did globally. Right? <laughs> um, that is just because it was China, of course. I'm not sure anyone ever topped that. Yeah. Um, now, again, you know, the U.S. is a large marketplace, and therefore it could be similar here. Um, what are the targets? You have numbers uh, you can share. Um, you're trying to raise how many billions <laughs> on the back of it. <laughs> I, yeah, and look, I'm happy to share. It's probably the worst-kept secret in the industry. Uh, from a sponsorship perspective, we've got to generate uh, a little over $2.5 billion. Um, and then the games, the public game budget i think the last was at about seven billion dollars um so they're they're big numbers um i'm i I do come from a company that and i remember the first meeting when they put a t after a number and i raised my hand at visa and i said what's the t stand for and they said trillion so we had a we had a target of 
uh, of dollars in the trillions. Wow. So billions is big. Yeah. Um, it doesn't scare you. But yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't. And I will say this, though, too, Marcus. I think that because you mentioned China and obviously Japan uh, happening soon, you know, the U.S. is a very sophisticated sports uh, marketing market. Yes. Uh, we have great companies that demand value. And I can tell you that over the course of the last you know year or so, in our discussions, you know, they're really interesting conversations with U.S.-based companies that have to ensure that there's a return on their investment. And we're well prepared to tell that story in a meaningful way, mostly because we have a bunch of people that come from the brand and agency side that are equipped mm -hmm. to tell that story. We're not just going to say, hey, we're, we're this great big event. Can we have your money now? Yeah. Um, it's about explaining uh, and sharing our mission and our goal and our view for the next eight years and finding alignment between us. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, like I said, it's, it's a lot of money and uh, – But you are a you have you have a bit of time. That's good. That's a good starting point as well. Um, you know, and but there obviously are restrictions, right? As usual, you have the IOC top program, and therefore you know there's always a bunch of things you you sort of can or cannot do. Really, um, talk a bit about that. How do you find that balancing between the the global partners and then the you know uh, local partners? Yeah. Um, so. You know, my experience has mostly been on the FIFA side, um, so I'm definitely uh, experienced in working with a Swiss-based uh, governing body and mm. how they see the world uh, and how they see the commercial opportunity. And um, so, I, you know, look, I think we've had a lot of good open conversations. I will say the IOC has been very successful in renewing or extending uh, their top partners So they're in a really good place as it relates to long-term yeah. deals and relationships. Yeah. So P&G, Coca-Cola, Visa, I mean, they've, they've got a, a lot of good blue chip companies um, that will support the movement for a long time to come. Right. Uh, having said that, um, two things. One is a lot of those companies are U.S.-based companies and are super excited for mm -hmm. U.S.-based games. Yep. So we have, a, you know, we have an advantage in that we're – We're able to work together. A number of those companies are West Coast-based as well. Um, so we do have an advantage in being able to speak a common language in many different respects because um, we will have a common goal as it relates to a successful game here, games in the U.S. Mm. Um, but also, look, the world is a big place, and there are a lot of different opportunities to engage with the Olympic and Paralympic Games without – running into any conflicts with the with the top partners so it's always an exercise of you know working through the different uh different categories and all that but yeah. we're less focused on the category and more focused on what's the meaning and the purpose behind it and how do we find commonality in the vision between us right. uh, and with that approach um you'd be surprised we, we have a lot of great conversations with you know companies that you'd want to be associated with so, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that while we have a long period of time and people are like, oh, my God, what are you going to do for this period of time? It's been really interesting because we're not building any venues, right? We could host the games tomorrow, literally tomorrow, um, without much of a need to do anything new and different. Right. Um, so it's been 
it actually has been somewhat liberating to be able to focus so much on doing foundational things right to ensure that not only are we able to work with our partners in a constructive, co-creative way, but we can worry more about what we're going to leave behind after mm. and worry less about what do we have to build to get there. Right. Yeah, and, that's and interesting. That's, it's a real luxury. Yeah, that's right. Obviously. And that's exactly that's rare. Um, obviously, historically, that's the, the opposite. Now, um, coming a bit back to, to Tokyo um, and, of course, the, uh, you know, what happened here this year and, and hopefully what will happen next year. How much you guys are looking at that and saying, you know, fine, we're so <laughs> far away. Um, we don't need to worry about it, uh, that ever happening to us. Or is there already, you know, people start plans of, you know, what could happen yeah. if, if you would have a similar scenario? Yeah. Um, so obviously what, what's happened and is happening is, you know, it, it's an unfortunate and very sad situation. Um, and more than anything, and when we go into these meetings, what's the best thing to do from a health and safety perspective? Because, again, we were also planning for Tokyo uh, with all of our current partners. So yeah. there was a lot of, you know, a lot of... Uh, rethinking and scenario planning on how do we work with our partners going forward. Um, and, I, and I'll, I'll say we looked at all the different, uh, all the different factors. And at the end of the day, we said, what's the right thing to do. And uh, so we extended all of our current partners by year with no additional costs or fees and mm. worked together to find new ways to engage with consumers when you couldn't have a bunch of people showing up in times square. Right. Yep, yep. Um, so that that's that was part of it. But more specific to your to your question is, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it certainly will make us smarter and sharper as it relates to any sort of crisis management or scenario planning that we'll do for the games that we host in L.A. Um, so there there's going to be key learnings out of this moment in time for everybody. I don't care what industry you're in. Uh that you can learn from and become better. And, you know, quite frankly, that's, that's really what we're all about is, you know, to listen, learn, and make sure that we're, you know, we're prepared to ensure successful delivery at the end of the day, not just for Tokyo, but for all the games in LA in particular. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, look, uh, I think we've, uh, we're almost getting sort of a, to the tail end here of our conversation. Uh, it was <laughs> really interesting talking through, all the way from MLS uh, days, uh, early days in MLS, of course, your visa days, and, and now talking uh, about the you know LA and, and everything else you're doing with the uh, with the U.S. Olympics there. So I think it's a it's a fascinating journey you've had uh, yourself, um, and it looks like you got a you know big eight years ahead of you here. Um, sure. You know, and uh, hopefully we'll have some more conversation over those times. Uh, you know, I'll try to check in here every <laughs> once in a while, um, especially when you maybe have some big announcements to make. Um, in the meantime, also yeah. say hello to Casey, please. Uh, he's also a good friend. Uh, I'm assuming he's still involved in it. Is he still the chairman of it? Or I have not, not sure about it. Uh, no, he is. He's the chairman and he's okay. he's very involved. And uh, as you know, probably one of the best human beings on the which makes makes what we do even more enjoyable. Um, it's nice Absolutely. when you have a, a good group of human beings working on a great project. Absolutely, yeah, that's it, important. It really helps make the journey so much. Yeah, send my regards yeah. and tell him he was so supposed to. Pleasant. Tell him he's supposed to get on the podcast too. He had promised me, and then he disappeared. 
<laughs> so, uh, but we'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll catch him. Um, so, Chris, any last thoughts uh, you'd love to leave us with? Um, of uh, you know, you know, what a, you know, maybe just sort of a quick wrap up of your career. What was you know? I always like to ask uh, my guests that you know, what is the biggest learning for yourself of all the things you've done um, working in these you know big companies, working on the agency side? You've really been on both ends. Uh, you know, what is it? What you would uh, sell, tell yourself? Uh, you know, uh, if you were a young graduate or someone you know just starting the industry, what's what is to watch out for? Um, well, I, you know, I guess mine's probably more personal than professional in that regard. Um, I think that I'd make sure that I would tell myself not to take myself too seriously, and to make sure that the guy you see in the mirror is the guy that you want to see, and mm-hmm. that you know you're shaping yourself personally and professionally into the person that you want to become. Sports is a great place. Sports and entertainment is a great place to be professionally. You can really enjoy your work, um, but it takes a lot from you because you're talking weekends and travel, and right. you know they're not traditional hours, right? So you get cool swag and you know interesting seats and tickets, um, but it's it's a lot of hard work and. I would say make sure that you always stay grounded because I've, I've certainly worked for people that have had the corner office and they start to think that that they're the talent. Mm. And that's not the case. You know, you're there to help drive the industry and the business. But I, I'll tell you, you can be a really great person and do great work. You can do this with respect and admiration for your colleagues in a you know, in a collegial way. And no matter, you know, no matter what athlete might recognize you or what property you might negotiate with or what VIP pass you might have, you're still a part of a, of an industry that thrives on, you know, teamwork. We're in sports. So teamwork is what makes it happen. Teamwork makes the dream work. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, I would say that, for those people that are in the industry and or want to be in the industry, just remember as you're enjoying the journey along the way, that's always going to work out for you. Um, do it in a way that's you know, big hearted and respectful and the universe will pay back in spades. And, you know, I, I've accidentally landed in a, and I think it's because I've tend to approach this, industry and the people that I work with, with respect and admiration. Um, and I, I just, you know, I hope a lot of people continue to do that, especially when the world is such a crazy place. That's for sure. Great. Chris, I think we'll, that's a perfect way to wrap this up. Uh, again, thank you so much, uh, and have a good evening there in Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, you know, again, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have, we'll be able to do this again here. Um, I hope everything goes well there with, uh, with your preparation for next year for the Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, let's hope that first of all, it will happen, of course, uh, in all the right ways. And maybe we'll, we'll catch each other there. That sounds fantastic. And anytime I'm always happy to talk to you and, uh, enjoy the rest of your day on the other side of the world. Thank you, Chris. Good. All right. Have a Take good care. Evening there. Thanks Cheers. again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.